You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast. This podcast series was designed to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters. We cover a variety of topics that will help you become more confident and comfortable in the field while hunting deer. On this episode of the How to Hunt Deer podcast, I talk with wildlife biologist Matt Ross about deer behavior during the winter months. This is a very interesting episode, even for the most seasoned hunters. This whole episode revolves around how deer behavior changes after the breeding season is over and they return to more of a bedding to feeding pattern. Matt goes into detail about how their bodies change, how they have adapted to harsh weather conditions, and even how their food preferences have changed throughout the year. Hold on tight. This is a great episode. Enjoy. All right. Long time no talk, Mr. Matt Ross. How we doing, man? I'm doing great, Dan. It's uh, it's a great time of year. We actually have snow on the ground here. You know, everybody likes to reflect on uh, their season, certainly with their deer season, but kind of the year, you know, as we kind of end the calendar year, thinking about how the year went, all the crazy stuff that happened, all the good stuff that happened. And yep. it's just a good time to reflect, you know, thinking about things that we're thankful for. And uh, I think it puts everybody in a good mood. Don't you agree? Even you. Yeah. I'm, I try to, I'll be honest, I try to stay in a good mood all the time, but this time of year is you're a hundred percent correct. I'm, I'm in my office now. Uh, the kids are back in school. Uh, and the, for, for the most part, my hunting season is over. So I am definitely reflecting on everything that I did right. Everything I did wrong, what's to come in the upcoming years. And just like, man, this is one, like I had one hell of a year this year. Yeah. So, that's good. It's yeah. a good. It's a good place to be. A good exactly. place to think. Exactly. Yeah. So, how was your year this year? 
it was good. I mean, you know, everybody went through all the craziness of the of what went in uh, the country and the world this year. But generally, you know, for my family, it was a good year. Um, we we actually lost a family member, which was sad. But you know, it 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 was a good year because uh, for a lot of reasons, it made you focus on what you're thankful for. Uh, my kids were in school the entire year. They didn't ever uh, uh, have to come home for any extended period of times because of COVID. So that was good. Um, we had a great summer. We did a little traveling, which was nice after last summer. And then my deer season was good. I actually did not hunt as much as I had in the last couple of years. Last year, I hunted a lot because of COVID. Uh, my wife was working from home, so I spent a lot of time. Um, she had she had uh, a little bit more at home time and helping the kids get on and off the bus so i spent a lot of time in a tree last year and i had a good season this season it wasn't the case and i really traveled more than than normal but it seemed like it was one of those years that with less effort i ended up with deer in the freezer um just kind of happenstance you know some of it that that takes planning but uh, i got deer with less effort so that was nice i took a bunch of new people hunting um and our season is still open not much longer um but i i I had a great time. Yeah. And I know you had a great season, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. I had a, I had my, it's my first ever two buck year. That's so awesome. I shot my buck in South Dakota and then I shot uh, a buck here in Iowa and uh, my feet, my freezer is full and my taxidermy bill is going to be higher than it was <laughs> last year. So that's, that's also a win, but, um, and that, that's, that's money that I like to spend. Okay. Yeah. So, but at the same time, man, it's just like, I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed every minute of this season and to like emphasize or like just to reiterate what you said, you were, you were killing deer with less effort. This year was one of those years for me where I tagged out early in Iowa, like two years ago, I think it was 19 is when I, I hunted like 15 days in a row, hard morning and night. And then, you know, it's like, not only am I starting to get tired from that, but then I was away from the family and they're like, okay, you're like, when's this going to end? Right. (laughs) Right. Come on. All right. You've, you've haunted. Let's go, let's get this job done. And then on the 14th or the 14th or 15th day, I got the job done. But, uh, but yeah, man, there's nothing wrong with walking into the woods and having it, something just fall into your lap, man. What's the perfect mix, though? You know, I yeah. mean, you like every we all want like the perfect the perfect scenario yeah. where you hunt just enough where you you get the experience, but you also don't burden your family or burden exactly. work. Or, and uh, how often does that happen? And it feels yeah. like that that never happens. So, yeah. uh, you know, with a twinge of uh, not regret, but just when you when you hunt and kill deer early like that, you you're like, man, that that almost happened too fast. I want to yeah. I want to experience a little bit. But yeah, that's right. You take what you can get. Right? Yeah. And I don't know about you, but the grind of a, a longer hunting season and I don't want to say like 25 days in a row type scenario. I've, I've been I've been in that scenario before uh, several years ago. But the, the grind is almost part of it, right? The, like, I, I want to get frustrated. I, I almost feel like I want to get frustrated. I don't, I don't want to just walk into the woods and be like, bloop. This it's is the a challenge. Yeah. Right? I mean, it really comes down to like, you know, part of hunting is there's so many nuances. I know you and I have talked about this on previous podcasts and just yeah. personally on the phone and, and at the bar or wherever. But, you know, this part of hunting is the camaraderie, yes. the food, um, 
but the challenge of it and really trying, you know, guys say, guys and gals say the cat and mouse game, but like really trying to think through if I do this, will this put me in a better position and then getting, getting, uh, not, you know, like basically get, getting shown up by the deer and then trying to figure out the next step that, that challenge is, is really, uh, one of the, one of the things of enjoyment, I think for a lot of hunters is making your human brain work the way it should have, you know, eons ago to, to outwit something. Yeah. Um, as part of it. And when you go in the woods and on the first set or the third set or whatever, and you get a deer, um, you don't, you don't put your brain to work like that. It's like, man, that wasn't supposed to go like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it works. Yep. Absolutely. So the last episode, we got into a little bit of a, a hunting strategy, uh, discussion about the late season. All right. But we never really talked about what deer their bodies they're doing from a survival standpoint in the these late the later months of the year into the the first couple months of the the next year in this this winter time frame and Mm -hmm. so i wanted to bring you on because you are a wildlife biologist who specializes in in whitetails and i want to talk about what the deer are going through uh this time of year and i think the 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 place to start is going to be the when the rut ends like the the perceived rut that we all know and love and and the the deer are going cha- uh, crazy chasing each other trying to breed but once that comes to an end what are the whitetail and bucks or does specifically however you want to answer it what are they doing this time of year to get back to uh, reality i guess you want to say well this is interesting you know throughout the year um deer are driven by two motivations the need to feed and the need to breed those are those and i've i've been around uh professors that have used that terminology before it's something we teach in some of our classes at nda uh that people take but those are the two primary factors of what drives them drives their behavior their movements everything they do and you're talking about when does that rut end that's the that's a short period of time in the general scheme of the year. Um, the rest of the time of year, they they're they're built to eat and eat a lot. Uh, if we haven't talked about this on the podcast before, um, an average deer eats five to seven pounds of food per day. Um, it's a certain percentage of their weight, you know, over a ton of food a year, and that's that's just a lot. Think about the volume of that. So as the rut ends, they are going back. That reality is the the need to feed the breeding part of their um, behavior is ending. And so they're concentrating on building up those uh, not really fat reserves because there's really not many foods available this time of year that build fat, but it's more of a maintenance mode to slow down the loss of fat, the slow down the loss of muscle. Um, Throughout the, the calendar year, they go through this, slow cycle of building up and getting ready for the for the breeding season and getting ready for the winter by just putting on as many pounds as possible eating stuff full of of uh, carbohydrates and sugar so they put on as much fat as possible they gain a ton of weight up to 30 percent body uh mass will will increase prior to the rut and as the rut ends they they've lost a lot of that because they reduce their intake um, and a lot of people think they start stuffing their mouths again to, to, to put that fat back on, but they're not, um, deer will actually continue just to reduce or stay at a, at a reduced 
uh, movement throughout the winter because think about what they're eating out there right now. Um, it doesn't matter where you live in the south or the north. Um, we're at a period of senescence where you know green vegetation is gone for the most part, unless you're in the deep deep south. Um, there's no you know any of the the soft and hard mass that's out there. There are some that's still available that fall fall in the ground or will be persistent in the trees and fall late. But as the as we get deeper into the winter and closer to spring, those things disappear. So the the quality and amount of food available in the next four months, five months is pretty low. It's at the lowest point of the year. And so deer can't put fat on. They have to they have to basically slow down the the loss uh, that they're going to continue to experience to the point where things start greening up again. Yeah. And they do that by just eating. So yeah. they're going to start moving and doing things that related to food. That That's what's going to happen. The timing's going to vary depending on where you live uh, when that rut ends. But food is the is the primary factor coming up. Okay. D- now, does there, you know, y- you you said they kind of go into maintenance mode there. Mm-hmm. Now, for us humans, we kind of require, if we have the same life, whether we're active or we, we're not as active, we kind of have the same amount of um, cal. We need the same amount of calorie intake every single day if our life yeah. is the same every time. Now, do these deer go through some kind of metabolic uh, uh, change as well during the uh, months where their body slows down and it goes into a, I don't know, a... I don't want to say like a, a, a like a, a cocoon type state or a hibernation type state, but do, do they slow down so so because of survival needs and, and the less amount of food that's available to them? They actually don't. That's a misnomer. Like okay. a set state of torpor or hibernation, there are animals that do that that can slow slow stuff down. Deer don't. It's been tested. Actually, it was um, one of the schools that I went to. Um, the professors there years earlier had actually tested that theory. Um, so deer do not slow down their metabolic rate. That's been something that, that has been written about, but it's not true. Um, what, what they're doing is, uh, they're going to lose, uh, fat and muscle mass, uh, throughout the winter that's, that happens. And so what they do is reduce their behavior, they reduce their movement. Um, so when grad school, uh, when I was in, in graduate school, we actually, had a facility like a deer lab a bunch of schools have those the in, today and if you read the the magazine the quality of whitetails magazine that nda puts out we often will cover some of the research coming out of these deer labs but when i was in graduate school we had captive deer that were used for research purposes at the university and uh it was interesting i was i lived there so i was like uh, on on site and i fed the deer and i would walk out there and do that and go to class and we uh, we would actually watch their food intake reduce during the post-rot winter months. We would order less food. They li- literally were like we'd fill the, the hoppers and the feeders and they were not eating. Even though they didn't have predators, um, they weren't at danger of anything. They had to live pretty posh life. But you'd have these full feeders that you'd think the deer would just gorge themselves to try to build all that back up. But through whatever evolutionary process through through eons deer have evolved to like just not eat that much and they don't move and so the same thing's happening in the wild Um, nothing's happening internally but what they do is they don't get up as much 
that they're not moving as much, even in places that don't have snow, they're not burning as many calories. So they change their behavior. And if they're not burning as many calories, they don't need as much food. Um, they only really are using food during the next couple months to, to slow down the loss of, of muscle and fat to the point where they're not in a state that they can't reverse it when the spring comes because they can get to a point if it's really, really bad. And there's been some cool research in northern climates, Minnesota, uh, Michigan, parts of New England that actually has some um, data behind how many days of hard winter they can take. Um, but they, they've they've built themselves to just they sit they sit still. They use their winter coat to keep themselves warm and they move very little bit. And the amount they do eat um, is is going into a maintenance mode. And also basically it's used for internal heat. Um, that digestive process creates um, heat inside them. And because they have that insulating coat of of uh, hair, uh, all these individual winter hairs on their winter coat have uh, air pockets in them. And I know probably a lot of people know that, but if you didn't, their winter coat, what deer look like in a winter, they actually have two layers, uh, an under fur and undercoat and these long guard hairs. And those guard hairs, each one of those is hollow. And so there's, there's air trapped in there and they can actually puff up their hair to like trap even more. So they create insulation. So the digestive process creates internal heat and then their their winter coat basically traps that and it keeps them warm. Yeah. And they also and their and their blood flow changes too. They don't their extremities has less blood flowing to it. Um, so that's the physiology of what deer are going through in the winter. Um, but they have to eat, obviously, yeah. but they just don't eat as much, and they're only doing it to survive. They they go into like when people say survival mode, they are in complete survival mode over the next say ninety days. Yeah. Yeah, that's nuts. Now, what about some, ex I want to talk a little bit about extreme climates like uh, Canada and, yeah. you know, some, some climates. Cause I know it wasn't last year, maybe three years ago, Iowa had a very harsh, lots of ice, lots of snow and extreme cold temperatures for long periods of time. How are they, how are they surviving in that climate as well? A lot of that's behavior as well. Um, that the really harsh climates that have deep snows and extremely cold temperatures. Uh, a lot of biologists have have a measure an index called the winter severity index. That it has to do with how many consecutive days in a row um, occur with a certain depth of snow at a certain temperature, and uh, it's basically like somebody set a timer. And as it clicks down, um, they only have so many days that they can take those kinds of conditions. Yeah. Um, and if if it extends that, um, if it goes past that, deer start dying. Um, yeah. Most climates, even the most extreme climates, you're talking about Saskatchewan, northern Canada, you know, re really, if you get really far north, deer just don't live in those climates because they don't proliferate. But yeah. where they do live, they, they're built to take it. Um, and really the biggest, the biggest concerns from a, a management perspective is not, um, not how early that stuff happens, but how late. So like when we start last year here where I, I live in Northern New York, um, 
we had like a 30 plus inch snowfall in December last year. It was insane. Uh, I lost some, some of my blinds got crushed. Uh, but it was like two weeks later, it was like 50 degrees. We lost all of it. It was, it was an insane heavy dump of snow and people see that and they start getting concerned and putting feet out for deer, which really shouldn't do. Um, but they started really feeling like, uh, deer are going to not make it. Um, that's not going to hurt a herd. Really what hurts a herd is when you get into those late, uh, late winter storms or those late extended conditions where March, uh, depending on where you live, you know, late February, March, getting into late March, if you get some really bad conditions at that time, their clock is at the end of the, um, the timer. You know, they really they're at the very last limits of their extent of what they can take. And that can really put deer over the edge. Um, but on a behavior standpoint and really extreme conditions, deer can become somewhat migratory. I mean, it's not as often as as some people think where they move into what uh, biologists call deer yards or wintering yards where they will find conditions that are better for survival. And that's typical um, in parts of those countries that I just mentioned, like New England, Great Lakes, parts of Canada, they look for stands of coniferous, uh, you know, pine trees, but basically coniferous trees, um, some of the firs, hemlocks, spruce, those kinds of trees that have really stiff branches, um, have a good crown closure, and trees are 30 to 40 feet tall at least with most of the sky being blocked, and they move into those stands and they'll travel miles to find those places because the snow is not as deep because the, the canopy holds it. It actually acts like a blanket, so the, the environmental conditions in those stands are better. There's less wind. Um, there's less snow on the ground. They can escape predators easier, and they will congregate in these yards. Uh, and they'll move, you know, historical yards will be used for generations, and, and uh, honestly, they're almost taught down through the through the the years and deer will learn where to go but that that's a pretty um that's a pretty niche thing that happens um in those places in many parts of the country um you know even from where i live deer aren't doing that unless uh it's really extreme conditions late in the year um they do will find these little pockets but for the most part uh, across America, across the United States, um, deer are not migratory. They're not moving into those yards per se. And, and in parts of the country, they, we don't even see snow. Uh, but you, you were asking about those extreme, yeah. extreme places. Yeah. That's, uh, I, I, it just amazes me how tough these animals are. And, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution have, you know, put them into this spot to where they can, they can take it. Right. That's, oh, what, yeah. that's what they, they have been designed to do. Um, yeah. so, uh, anything else unique? Uh, and I know you mentioned how late the snow goes, like I know April, like, when, when do a deer typically drop their fawns? A lot of the fawns are being born in April, April. Um, sometimes early May. Um, yeah, it's an, it's, it, it varies depending on the rut because the rut is the driver of breed is obviously the breeding season is that right. the driver of conception when deer are breeding and it's about 200 days later okay. that uh, fawns are born so like if the peak of your rut 
is second week of November, you can calculate 200 days later, and that's when the peak of fawning is going to be. If your rut is like all over the place and you have um, breeding occurring over, say, three to four weeks, you might have fawns being born over those three to four weeks of the spring 200 days later. Um, so that that's 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 how that works. Okay. So with that said, how what's the impact now? If there is a severe winter storm or a very drop, a a big drop in temperature around that fawning uh, stage, because, man, it it almost seems like there's places in the United States where there are there are heavy snowstorms or big cold fronts come through in that early April or that late April, early May time frame. Yeah, I mean, it can happen. Um uh, it's 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 rare. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the further north you go, the more consistent the rut is, because they have to be born um, on time so that they're they're getting it past those winter yeah. uh, storms. But they're also born early enough that they can actually be be big enough the following year uh, before it starts getting cold again and the food starts disappearing. So um, the further north you go, the more reliable the rut is. And and as many of your listeners probably know, the further south you go, the rut can vary and it can vary by, you know, even small distances across one state. It can be very, very different. Um, But some research that came out um, to answer your question, some research that came out, I think, in the last year or so um, that showed uh, some of the conditions that end up really impacting fawn survival those first really early days is precipitation, mm-hmm. how much rain and temperature. So if you even have like a cold rain, um, never mind a, a snowfall, but if you have like really damp, cold conditions during those days, um, it can impact fawn survival. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now what about, okay. So the rut happens, a doe gets pregnant, right? She has to ride out a winter. The yep. buck, he gets to, he doesn't, he's just not growing something inside of it, right? And, and that yeah. takes energy, right? And that takes food. So talk to us about what's going on in a pregnant doe in that time of year. Because uh, it sounds like it for them, like if I'm just assuming at this point, I'm no biologist, but I'm assuming that that food becomes way more important to them than it would say, let's say a buck. It, it, you know what? This is one. There's so many awesome things about deer. I, I like. I love my job. I mean, if you can't tell, yeah. can't tell it. And I, and I love my job because I, I love deer hunting. Um, but I really love, you know, the biology of deer. And there's so many interesting things about about whitetails. Um, what you just asked. This this has always blown my mind. They actually delay growth of the the newborn fawn of the fetus. Um, till it gets the conditions get better. Like eighty percent of the growth of that of that newborn fawn is in the third trimester. Hmm. So they they basically just stop. You know, it the their fertilized egg is in there and it's growing, but it's growing at a really slow rate for the first two trimesters. And the third trimester, it's like when food becomes available. Because again, it doesn't matter if you live. I'm again. I'm looking at snow outside my window. It doesn't matter if you're in Alabama, uh, or if you're in New York, where I am. Food availability is lowest right now, and so it doesn't matter if they're trying to survive deep winter. 
but they they need that food to grow the fetus as you just mentioned nutrition is everything yeah so no matter where a deer is they that's what they do um 80 of fetal growth occurs in the tr- in the third trimester and when the food is available isn't that insane that's crazy so it's just like there's a there's a click or there's a, a switch that's flipped and all of a sudden yeah. it's like yep time to eat time to grow and they just yep. they blow up yeah that's i mean nuts. that's why they're so uh flexible adaptable productive um deer deer do really well in many different environments conditions vegetative characteristics it doesn't matter if the northern hardwoods or brush country of texas um they're survivors as we've been talking about yeah and they've they they have evolved to figure out their you know the the generations that we hunt today are here because they've made it i mean they've been around a long time too um they've made it they know how to how to survive yeah so for the most part there's I think the last time I checked, there was a white-tailed deer hunting season in every single, or in 46 states. So all but two of the lower 48 states. Um, is that, I mean, are there deer in every uh, every one of the lower 48 states? Is there white-tailed deer in every one of those states? There, There's not white-tailed deer at every single uh, of the four, lower 48, but there are deer at every single uh, okay. state in the lower 48. There are, you know, black-tailed deer. There's mule deer. Yeah. Uh, Coos deer. There's, there's different co- yeah. cows deer, yeah. yeah. Um, there's there's deer everywhere, um, and they're all a derivative. The white-tail's the oldest species of all of those, um, but they, they're survivors. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk uh, real quick about you know, we've touched based on it, but maybe give us more of a blunt answer here um, for for the winter, right? What is what are the best possible conditions for uh, a deer? Because I'm talking, I want to, I want you to answer this um, from almost like a habitat management standpoint, where what would be best for the deer herd coming out of a winter uh, and being, oh man, the the fawns are going to be the uh, the fawns are going to have uh, you know a really good chance of, of survival and they're mm-hmm. going to be healthy. Their moms are going to be healthy, and then at the same time, you know the bucks they're coming off of a, a winter where they didn't have to struggle much. And then does that translate into antler growth and, and, and bigger body sizes for that that next fall? And then at the sure. at, talk about the flip side of that too, and 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 what's the worst conditions for them? Well. Uh... I'll start with the worst conditions. The worst conditions would be is if as the winter um, ends and we get into spring, uh, they don't have food and cover available um, or, or good amounts of quality food and cover to the point where they're competing for it. Um, you know, so they need to start the, the, the decline has stopped. They have stopped um, losing muscle and losing fat. Um, and they need to start putting, putting it on. And if there are too many deer or the conditions aren't, um, of ideal setting, uh, deer will, uh, not eat as much. And what it impacts is it slows down the whole process that for the next year, um, before the rut happens, they haven't grown their, their antlers. 
uh, of a certain size that it will actually retard the growth of antlers. So a deer of a certain age, even if he's a mature deer, four or five, he's not going to have his antlers as big as they would have been because he started late or yeah. his, his period of, uh, of taking in nutrition was slower. What, what we generally recommend or you try to do, um, as deer are kind of coming out of winter, um, you want to provide a diverse array of food and cover for them and what they're going to eat first as as that becomes uh, as winter ends is a a group of plants called forbs f o r b s forbs are broad-leaved non-woody plants and there are lots of things that fit that category soybeans are forbs um, we plant those. They're not a naturally occurring thing, but they're a broadleaf plant that doesn't have a woody stem. It's a soft stem. There's lots of things that grow on the roadside ditches, sides of fields. If you turn over a field and don't plant it, a lot of people think of them as weeds. Even in a forest setting, um, there are forbs that grow. So forbs is the primary diet component of deer coming out of winter and it actually lasts all through spring and even the beginning of summer um and it's has the most nutrition out of all the plant um types all the different categories of plants forbs carry the most uh, nutrients in them and so what i would like to see is uh, conditions when deer when winter ends they have access to as many forbs as possible and that comes down to land management. Um, forbs are only going to occur if there's a lot of disturbance. Um, and if you're doing a lot of land management, they occur in food plots, a lot of food plot forages that like, if you don't always have to have a food plot, but if you're planting food plots, um, a lot of the perennial, uh, ones that occur like clovers, chicories, um, th those types of plants, they're all forbs. Um, those are one of the first things they're going to key in on. And if you don't have access to being able to plant food plots, those those ground disturbance events in forested settings or open settings, that's where you're going to get lots of forbs. So you could literally just drag a disc or uh, disturb the ground with, you know, uh, a rake and, and get that leaf litter off or get the grass litter off and just expose the dirt what's going to grow first in the spring is Forbes. Okay. Um, so th those are what I would want, the type of food and lots of it. And I'd want it dispersed across the property, lots of Forbes. And then the second thing is good cover for fawns. Fawns need, um, they need, they need good cover. De those are, are deer are not a territorial species that people think that like scrapes and rubs and stuff we see in the woods during the fall, during the rut are bucks marking their territory. That's, that's not true. Um, deer are not territorial. They overlap home ranges and core areas and they, they inter intermingle quite a bit. The only time deer are truly territorial is in the spring when does are having fawns, they basically set up a place that it's theirs and there are no other deer in those uh, using it at a high rate. There's no other does in there. They, they put their fawn in places of good cover. And that's probably the biggest lacking thing. Um, you can, you can find Forbes, deer can find Forbes, but good fawning cover is probably the most limiting resource for a deer herd to really, um, be, uh, productive. And that comes with management. You yeah. got to make sure that there's enough sunlight hitting the ground in your forest that there's regenerating trees and shrubs and forbs. Or if you have field environments, 
you're not farming border, you know, boundary line to boundary line, and there's nothing but either closed canopy forest with nothing growing in them, and fields that are that are uh, being hard used for production i know that's important for our country and for you and me to eat but from a wildlife management perspective you want to at least have some sections of your property that is just regenerating shrubby growth and if you only have one spot on your property that looks like that that's only going to be good for one doe and one fawn yeah and the other deer around have to go find someplace else to fawn so that that's another consideration Gotcha. Is that blunt enough? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I kind of want to, uh, this is a topic that happens every single, uh, winter people start to, you know, they, they get out there and to us, it could be a hard winter. Like, Oh man, we've got a lot of snow. It's cold. It's windy, burr, you know, tough. Uh, I don't want to go outside. Um, talk to us a little bit about why you should really think of like, like second guess or, or think about, feeding deer like a dumping a bag of corn or something like that to to help them get through the winter the biggest reason i mean there are a variety of reasons in those extreme environments that we talked about earlier um there is a lot of education and outreach and in some places it's outlawed to even feed deer deer in the winter now i know uh rules and regulations across the country vary um, you would always want to follow your state or provincial uh, rules and regulations, whether it's legal or not. So there's no recommendations to go feed deer, um, even if it is legal, depending on what time of year. But what I'm talking about in the next few minutes is feeding deer in winter to try to enhance survival. Um, one of the biggest reasons it's it's not recommended, even if you're not in a winter, deep winter, snowy, cold environment, is that often it's done in a um in haste like you put it out there as i mentioned earlier you just said people see these conditions they're like i want to help the deer so they put it out there and the way that a deer's stomach or digestive system works it shocks their system so that and it could really make them sick or even kill them um they're they're just like a cow they have um a, a four chambered ruminant stomach so they have to uh di- they swallow the food uh, just like a cow. They put it in their first uh, in the first chamber of the rumen, and they eat it in big gulps, and they don't really chew it that well. And they're prey animals. They, they do that because they are, again, survivors, and their biology and their behavior is such that what they typically do with their behavior is they will go gorge themselves. They feed at certain times of the day. If you're a hunter, you know this. They're, they're most active at dawn and dusk. They eat a lot. And then they retreat in security into security during the day and they sit there and they regurgitate and chew their cud just like a cow and and swallow it again and it goes into the next chamber and it breaks down when you put out food for deer to survive they they take those big gulps and they chew that big stuff and put it in their rumen and the the digestive biome of uh microbacteria and other other things in their stomach are not there to break that stuff down and that feed can actually just sit there and not digest and it can make them really sick it's a it's actually called a rumen acidosis um, it could change their whole like acid structure of their stomach and deer can die with a full belly of corn 
if you put corn out there. Now, if they're in Iowa and they've been eating waste corn in the fields and they have that uh, that biome, that microbacteria already living, they're a living organism in their rumen, then they probably can digest it. But in places like northern New England, there's not a cornfield anywhere. And, you know, they're living off of hemlock branches and dead leaves and acorns they dig under the snow. And somebody dumps out uh, corn or a, a feed that's got corn in it. Um, their stomach's not used to it and it can make them sick. And there's been mass die-offs in places where you'll find like a dozen or 20 deer dead because somebody fed them. So you're trying to make them survive and people want to help. I mean, we, we know as biologists, people don't do that because they want to hurt deer. I mean, even hunters, yeah. uh, you and I both know hunters care about deer, but it can really do more harm than good. That's actually a slogan that um, a state uses. It does more than harm than good. So you can kill them. Um, that's the primary reason, but there's a whole host of other reasons. Uh, you're you're putting deer in a situation where um, they can pass disease easier. Um, they congregate around houses because typically people aren't walking way out in the woods to do this. And because they're congregating around houses, you see deer vehicle collisions go up in those neighborhoods. Um, and, and there's more there's more than that. But those are those are minor compared to the fact that you can actually kill them. And it yeah. doesn't have to be deep snow. Uh, for that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Well, I tell you what, Matt, uh, very informative, uh, uh, today, I really appreciate taking time out of your day to, uh, hop on the phone and educate us a little bit about what's going on in the deer woods, uh, as far as a bio, you know, the biology standpoint, good luck. If you're, if you plan on taking uh, yourself or your daughters out, uh, hunting, hunting the rest of this, uh, this season. And, uh, again, thanks for your time. I appreciate it, Dan. We got a new season this year between Christmas and New Year's that uh, has never been uh, available in my state called the holiday season. I do plan on getting out a little bit. So uh, that, that's otherwise today would be the last day of the season. Uh, so I, I, I got a little extra opportunity and I'm going to try to get out there. Are you all done for the year? There, uh, well, I'm going to go put out some trail cameras either today or tomorrow and see if there's any if there's a late season deer running around on, on the property. I don't necessarily need any more meat as uh, yeah. I, I have a full freezer and a deer at the processor so uh, that I have to pick up yet. Uh, so we're, we're, we're just trying to eat as much uh, venison as possible to make room for more men- uh, venison. And um, so unless uh, something comes through that looks uh, the caliber of deer that I want, I'm going to I'm going to probably hang it up for the year. I got you. I got you. Well, that's not a bad place to be to try to eat as much venison as possible. Right. Right. More venison in there. Good talking to you, Dan. I really appreciate it. If there's uh, anything I can ever do for you or the audience, you know, let us know at the Deer Association. We're here for you guys. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you want to find out more information and utilize additional resources, visit DeerAssociation.com slash Hunting 101. There you will find links to the YouTube series, Guide to Successful Deer Hunting ebook, new hunter sign-up sheets, and Deer Hunting 101 courses. Additionally, you can listen to more outdoor-themed podcasts at SportsmansNation.com, on iTunes, or anywhere you download your podcasts.